Welcome back to another episode of Reading for a Change, a podcast from Moody Publishers where we take an inside look at the books transforming our lives and shaping the world. Uh, I'm Drew Dick, your host. I'm an author and editor, and I am super excited about our guest today. Uh, Dr. Deborah Gorton uh, is the Gary Chapman Chair of Marriage, Family Ministry, and Therapy at Moody Theological Seminary in grad school. Uh, She is the author of Embracing Uncomfortable, Facing Our Fears While Pursuing Our Purpose. And this book is brand new, like really new. Uh, This episode is releasing June 1st, I believe, and the book comes out June 2nd. So it's actually better than new. It's, It's like not even here yet, but it will be very soon. And I got an early copy because I'm special. Or maybe it's just because I work at Moody and I get a free copy of the new books. But man, this was one I was looking forward to reading and it did not disappoint. Uh, Deb is also uh, the host of the Becoming Well podcast. So she's a veteran podcaster as well. Deb, I'm so excited to have you on. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. And what a nice introduction. (laughs) Thank you. Um, Well, first of all, I got to say, we we have a lot in common. Uh, We are both Fuller grads. Hey, I Yay. actually read that about you and it was very exciting. Yes. And I, and in your book, you talk about like walking around in Pasadena. So you were there like, you know, at the mothership, the main campus in Pasadena, correct? I was, I lived literally like in Fuller's backyard and gosh, I, I got to say, especially in January and February here in Chicago, I miss it a lot. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I miss it too. I'm out in the, the rainy Northwest. And so I, I pine for the days of sunshine every day. Um, yeah, we even thought of living there after I graduated. And then we realized we don't have $2 million for a tiny house. We (laughs) we better move. (laughs) And I just got a master's degree, but you got a master's and a doctorate. Uh, and now, uh, we both work for Moody. So I work for the publisher and you work for the college and and the grad school. So, wow, a lot in common. Just had to get that out of the way. Um, (laughs) I am really enjoying your book, Embracing Uncomfortable. It is, it's great. And, the first thing though, you know, just the title itself, I realized that this is a book uh, with a message that kind of cuts against the grain of our nature <laughs> because, very true, right? We all want to be comfortable. And you might even say that's a core part of the American dream. You want this affluent, comfortable life. So I guess my first question for you is, can you sell me, can you sell our listeners on the idea of embracing this thing, discomfort, this thing that we're all trying to avoid? Yes, absolutely. I will try my very best. And I'll say, you know, part of what motivated me to write this book was actually my own experience. So I challenge myself every day to put this into practice. And honestly, you can't really write a book called Embracing Uncomfortable and have anybody in your inner circle not tell you every day, well, Deb, you wrote a book called Embracing Uncomfortable. So you kind of have to live out what you preach. Um, But for me, you know, the selling point is the reality that when we choose comfort in the moment, we're actually creating a life of long-term discomfort. Because usually Mm. in that moment, you know, our decision-making is very reactive and habitual. And we're not always and often choosing the decisions that align with our core values. We're reactive and, um, and we're doing what we do in the moment. And, and it may create a temporary and I would argue a lot of times false sense of comfort. Um, 
But then the outcome later on is this ongoing sense of discomfort. So what I'm challenging people to do is to flip the switch in a way and to push yourself in the moment. So think temporarily to choose the uncomfortable decision or action or behavior or relationship status kind of thing. And and the outcome down the road will be a, a greater sense of of alignment with what matters most to you. Oh, I love that. You are preaching to the choir because I I wrote a book about self-control and that was one of my big realizations as I was researching this. People think that, um, you know, saying no to yourself or doing something difficult in the short term is this awful restrictive thing. But in fact, <laughs> as you do that and you, and you choose the right thing rather than the easy thing, your life actually gets better. And your book just makes that so crystal clear. You start off, though, by talking about a very difficult story um, about losing your mom Mm -hmm. uh, at the beginning of the book and the impact that had on your life. I'm wondering if you can just uh, tell our listeners about what you learned from that huge loss. Yeah. Well, and this is really kind of, again, like the the impetus for me for writing the book. Um, So my mom, almost 12 years ago now, actually, um, tragically took her own life. And prior to that, had battled um, pretty significant mental illness, although it was relatively swept under the rug in our family. And I'm the oldest child uh, by quite a lot. My family were all adopted, which I love that part of my story, but it also comes with some challenges and hardships. And so for me, and I, and I think we all have identities that go against the grain of who God designed us to be. I mean, that's part of our fallen nature. And so for me, I kind of created this false identity that I belonged if I could fix things. Uh, And so as my family was navigating the consequences of what my mom was going through, which, you know, there's a, there's a lot we can unpack with mental illness and not for this podcast, but I don't hold her, you know, it's a complicated circumstance that, that really is difficult to, to understand. But for me, what happened in the aftermath of that was this whole identity of fixing was just shattered to pieces because Mm -hmm. she didn't get better. In fact, she did the one thing that we were all terrified would happen. Um, And so I had to really come to this reality that if my identity was in being a fixer, I failed. My identity was then being a failure. And so it took a lot of rooting out, a lot of time, a lot of my own counseling, wise people in my life that were speaking into me um, to realize that that wasn't a part of of my core value and worth. That it, it was something I enjoyed doing, coming alongside people um, as they were struggling. But it wasn't, you know, it wasn't who I was. Uh, but my choices reflected that every day. And so, if I couldn't fix something, I was uncomfortable. But in the moment, if I choose to pursue fixing a relationship, a problem, a work issue, I would feel this momentary comfort. But it was all wrapped around this false identity. Wow. Yeah, that makes sense. And it just hit me so hard how you you explained too about how you had this ideal kind of future for your family and for yourself that you had in mind and how that suddenly evaporated uh, with the loss of your mother. Um, And so I guess if there's a silver lining uh, to all of that, uh, it did lead to some of the powerful realizations uh, that you had that you've put into this book. So we appreciate that. Um, Is comfort always a bad thing? And how can you recognize when it is a bad thing? Yeah. Well, as you said, you know, I think 
as a society, um, especially as a Western majority culture, we are kind of conditioned by media um, and by the by kind of these larger voices speaking into our lives that we long for comfort. And I'm sure you and 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 your listeners can easily think of a story where somebody who has amassed great amounts of wealth reports that they're not happy like they thought they would be. Yes. Um, and so we, we, we definitely seek after false comfort. But no, comfort in and of itself is definitely not a bad thing. I, what we need to look at is what is motivating that comfort and what are we defining as comfortable? That's the key there. And so, you know, I use a lot of stories in my own life um, in, throughout the book to kind of give, give merit to this and give examples. And one is that I chose for a year, and I'm still continuing this practice, although it's been hindered a bit in, uh, during the, the pandemic and the sheltering at home, but I challenged myself for a year to walk to and from work. And this was something that my dad and I had done when he came to visit. And um, so, as I mentioned, I live in Chicago. I'm about two miles exactly uh, from my apartment to work. And so, you know, when it was July, when it was August, September, it was kind of hot, but it wasn't that bad. January comes and I'm like, oh. <laughs> what was I thinking? <laughs> I don't want to do this. My bed is warm. It's dark outside. I have to sacrifice, you know, 30 extra minutes of commuting to be able to walk. I, I want to give up. And in the moment, guaranteed, it would be much more comfortable to have stayed in bed and, you know, snuggled under the warmth of my covers and, and instead chosen to Uber to work or, or take the bus. But I made the commitment and I really wanted to follow through on that. And so it was very uncomfortable a lot of the time to get up and walk and follow through. Yes. Um, but at the end, <laughs> right? Yeah. At the end of that time period, at the end of a year, I looked back and all that I had learned um, about myself in that reflective time, about my mm. city, getting to really absorb and see the people around me um, was so valuable to me. And I could argue I was very comfortable with that decision to follow through on my commitment. Um, and, and that's, that is good comfort. That is aligning my decisions with my values, which brings me a sense of peace and contentment with, uh, choosing consistent with what's most important to me. That's good. Yeah. And not to mention the exercise you got. I mean, <laughs> that's exactly. huge too. Yeah. And that, and, and trust me, if I, if you haven't been to Chicago, you're listening to this, uh, Chicago in January is cold and I'm Canadian and I'm telling you it is, I, I, I lived there for seven and a half years. Uh, so I, I know that's, that's freezing and two miles, that's no picnic. No, um, it, yeah, it was tough. <laughs> that is, but yeah, you, you're right. It's that paradox, right? That you're, you're, you're doing something uncomfortable in the short term to align, like you say, with your values, uh, to ultimately bring about a good comfort in the long term. I love that. Who are some of your, your, role models when it comes to embracing uncomfortable? Well, I know it's it's kind of probably a little bit cliche to say this, but honestly, when I read the New Testament and I see the way Jesus behaved in the culture and the society of that time, um, it is so inspiring to me to seek out and strive for things that I think we typically see as very uncomfortable, which is um, advocating for justice, reaching out to um you know, marginalized people groups, being in community with people that are different and think differently than we do, um, all of which just enriches our knowledge of who God created us to be. So, you know, to me, that's that's kind of the the 
the ethos of embracing uncomfortable. Um, today, you know, again, we're talking right now during this pandemic that is going to have a marker on our world for generations to come. And I think about healthcare workers and my best friend mm. is a middle school educator and right now is educating sixth, seventh and eighth graders via Zoom every day um, and <laughs> sacrificing, you know, her own sense of comfort on a regular basis to look at a computer screen and help her kids continue the learning experience. And so some of those people just, wow, they just inspire me every day to live and to breathe embracing uncomfortable. Amen. No kidding. You're right. At this moment, healthcare workers, and you're right, teachers. I, <laughs> I have two young school-age kids that are doing Zoom calls. And I mean, Zoom calls are chaotic with adults. Okay. And then you get like you know, 25 year olds on there. My goodness. I, <laughs> I can't imagine. So yeah, kudos to them for sure. Um, so here's another distinction sort of question. What is the difference between comfort and contentment? And, and why does that difference matter? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, again, I think it, it it's I, I'm I'm big on semantics, and it could be that prior to getting my my degree in psychology, I was a journalism major, and so oh, words cool. were huge to me. My my high school English teacher would hopefully be proud. Of. But to me, this idea of comfort, you know that that's what we are motivated by. Um, and, and we have to put that in context. Are we really seeking, like, is, again, going back to the question you asked earlier about, is comfort a bad thing? Well, it really is about what does comfort mean for us? Um, and does that comfort we're, we're seeking align really with what we believe about the world around us, what our values are, what's most important to us? Contentment, I, I think, is actually a discipline. Mm. And, you know, it goes back to, to Paul, I'm content in all circumstances. Well, I think we unfortunately read that and we think that, that, that that's a, uh, an emotional experience, that if I'm feeling anxious or discouraged or lonely or disappointed, then I'm not content. And I actually disagree with that. I, I believe it's a, it's a choice that we pursue every day and that I can be content. I can, I can actually look around and say, I'm grateful and thankful for the circumstances in my life, but I still feel a sense of loss. You know, we talked about my mom. I'm content in my circumstances now, and I'm content knowing that someday I will dance with my mom again in heaven. But that doesn't mean I don't grieve her loss in my life now. And the things that she's missing out on, like my nephews and my niece who are born, who was just born a couple months ago, she's missing mm. out on meeting her grandkids. So uh, comfort, you know, it's again, I think something that we're pursuing to, to be uh, experiencing contentment, on the other hand, is a discipline. Yeah, I love that, that it's a discipline, a commitment that I'm sure you have to make repeatedly and that it's not like mutually exclusive with, like you said, feeling anxious or, or hardship. Yeah. Um, and the, and yeah. let me clarify, I, I sometimes have to pursue contentment like every minute of every day. <laughs> same, same. <laughs> um, well, change, changing's hard to, to put it mildly. Uh, we often use the excuse, I just don't have time to justify our lack of commitment to change. How does the way we, we steward our time impact our ability to pursue transformation in our lives? I really think this is probably one of the most significant impacts on our culture today is this idea that we have to fill up our time with so many things. I mean, there's a, there's a phrase keeping up with the Joneses for a reason. And, um, 
I had a I had a professor in grad school that I think said this. I'm not sure where where this phrase got stuck in my mind, but this idea that every decision we make involves a loss. And, you know, that you can kind of hear that and think, well, that's really glass half empty pessimistic, but it's true. Every decision we make involves a loss. When I was choosing to walk to work every day, I was losing out on staying in bed and sleeping a little bit longer, but there's also always a gain. And so when, when it comes to time, I really think we need to reorient our relationship to time. And instead of thinking, okay, what can I fit in to these 24 hours in a day? Because let's be honest, if God all of a sudden just miraculously turned our day into a 36-hour day, we'd still be saying we didn't have enough time. We'd fill up 36 hours, right? <laughs> we Americans certainly would, yes. We totally would. And so it's a matter of, of rethinking our relationship to time and saying, all right, loss is inevitable. And that's not meant to be pessimistic. It's actually supposed to align my decision-making and my perspective to consider if I'm going to lose something, what's the loss that I do not want to incur? So, you know, if I'm choosing to stay at work for longer hours of time to get these tasks done and I'm losing out on time with my family, am I willing to make to to incur that loss or instead am I willing to embrace the discomfort of saying no to a project or having an honest conversation with my boss about the amount of responsibility I have on my plate or even turning down something I'm really intrigued and excited by? Because what's most important to me are the relationships in my life. Yes. Wow. That is so clarifying. I love that, that every decision you make uh, is a loss because, yeah, we do not have an infinite amount of time. Um, and that's just sobering. And then it really puts things in perspective. Is this something um, that I'm willing to take on in my schedule? Uh, because it is going to constitute a certain loss on the other side. I think that's great. Um this book, uh, Embracing Uncomfortable, it, it could be a benefit to anyone. I mean, what I'm trying to say is you don't need to be a Christian to benefit from this book. And it's not the kind of book where it's like, okay, there's a ton of scriptural allusions. And if you don't have a, a, a knowledge of scripture, you're not going to get it. So I think it's great. It certainly has scriptural principles in it, but not explicitly. But I'm wondering, how does the message of this book relate to your Christian faith? And I know you already touched on it, obviously talking about Jesus as the ultimate example of embracing uncomfortable. But I'm wondering if you had anything else to say on how this relates to your faith. Yeah. Um, I actually just posted about this on social media recently in light of some of the other things that we're experiencing in our nation um, in terms of, unfortunately, just... What, what is not new, but what we're now seeing with technology and video, and that's, you know, the historic and the systemic racism that undergirds our society. Yes. And, you know, I, I, I believe if we truly embrace the truth of Scripture that all people, regardless of any distinction, are made in the image of God, that we treat all people with dignity and we fight for the justice and care in support of all people. I believe that is a Christian imperative. And, 
you know, just to kind of dial it back a little bit to a practical example. So as a psychologist, I think my brain just kind of naturally goes towards these social psychology experiments. Everywhere I go, I'm always making observations. And I'm not going to single out one church, but for a season, as I was visiting different churches in my travels and, and visiting family and friends and whatnot, I started to pay attention to church mission statements. And, you know, all mm. churches, I think, kind of have, uh, at least in the evangelical world, tend to have a somewhat similar mission statement of like, go make disciples or reflect Jesus or whatnot. And so I started thinking about, you know, in the big picture, that's very inspiring. But in the day-to-day interactions within the church, are we, and I would include myself in this, am I reflecting that mission, that vision, which I believe is wholly rooted in scripture. And so when I go to, and this may sound silly, but it's, I think it's, it's relevant. When I go to a restaurant and I have a waiter who perhaps had a very terrible day and doesn't provide me with the best type of service, Hmm. does my words, attitudes, and action towards that individual reflect Christ's character? regardless of how their actions are making me feel in the moment. And, and yeah. I think this is where it's, it's so crucial for us as believers to consistently come back to the transformative power of Christ and, and to be humbled by that. Because it's easy to go into the world and justify our actions. We live in a very you know, broken world. Um, but God says in the Psalms that he values a broken and contrite heart. He wants us to be remorseful, humble individuals. Um, and I think that's what really transforms communities. Absolutely. And it demands embracing uncomfortable. Oh, so much so. It's yeah. not easy. No, it isn't. And you're right. And we're, we're in such a, our society is all about, you know, encouraging us to get what's ours and to you know, feel entitled. So yeah, if someone gives you bad service or the wrong product or something like that, you, you, you're going to complain, you're going to, you know, uh, raise your voice. And yet as Christians, we're called to a different way. That's a great reminder. Thank you so much for writing this book. It's a great book. If you've been enjoying this conversation, I just want to say to listeners, uh, I want to encourage you right now to head over to moodypublishers.com and grab a copy of Deb's book, Embracing Uncomfortable. I, I checked it out yesterday online it, on Amazon. It's like full price, like 15 bucks. But right now it is 40% off at moodypublishers.com. So trust me, you want to get this book. It's a great book. Again, head over to moodypublishers.com to receive 40% discount today on Embracing uncomfortable. Well, Deb, um, as I gave you a heads up, we do have a couple of segments that we're doing in this season of the podcast. The first one, we're just calling the writing life. Um, We like to ask authors about their process or the experience of being a writer. I'm wondering in your case, since you're a a trained uh, psychologist, um, are there any principles or concepts from your training as a psychologist that you use in the writing process to connect with readers? Great question. And yes, um, my kind of background as a psychologist is I'm very behavioral in my approach. And so for me... um, Can you explain what that means exactly? Yeah. Is that like a Skinner thing? (laughs) (laughs) Kind of. Yeah, absolutely. So I I really believe that thoughts influence our behavior, which influence our emotions. And so changing our behavior can actually change the way we think and the way we um, ultimately then feel in certain situations. So when it came to writing the book, I thought, all right, 
take it one step at a time. And I know that sounds so cliche, but oftentimes we see the big picture and we get really overwhelmed by that. And this is my first book and I was easily overwhelmed at the thought of (laughs) writing an entire book. And so I just took it one chapter at a time. And when one chapter was too much, I took it one section of a chapter at a time. And when one section was too much, all right, you just have to write a page. Or there were even some days, I got to be honest, Drew, I said, you just have to open your computer and that's it. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And usually that was enough to motivate me. And then the second was I involved my community. Accountability is huge, but so is just diverse voices speaking into your process. And so my friends were, you know, they would get text messages from me. Hey, I'm wanting to flush out this idea. How would you respond to this question? Um, I have this in my acknowledgments in the back. My best friend is all throughout this book and she's hilarious. So if anybody laughs in this book, it's probably her joke that I rewrote (laughs) into some different phrase or form. And um, so that was really helpful in keeping me going as well. That is great. That is great advice, too, for uh, any aspiring writers out there. Um, Reminds me of the quote. I forget who said it, but I only write when I'm inspired and I make sure that I'm inspired at 9 a.m. every morning. Uh, (laughs) So it it just sometimes it's just a matter of showing up and and putting in the time and yeah, writing a page or just opening the Word doc uh, and staring at the blank screen. Um, That's great. Last question for you. We're in a tough time right now everyone's lives have been disrupted by this global pandemic. Some parts of the country are opening up, but even then it's kind of partial and, and our routines have been disrupted. Um, can you tell us about a guilty pleasure? And it can really be anything that has helped you get through this challenging time. Yeah. So um, I am a child of the 80s and 90s, and I discovered pretty quickly at the beginning of the pandemic this thing called a Nintendo Switch. As a grown woman, I bought one of those Nintendo Switches, and I play old school Super Mario Brothers. And it brings me back to my childhood. And I have so much fun. And I just kind of mentally check out and relax. I have to put limits on how much I can play. But gosh, it's been... (laughs) It's been so fun. (laughs) That is awesome. I love it. Um, And I, too, am a child of the 80s and 90s and have very fond Nintendo memories. So I may have to follow suit. (laughs) Oh, I highly recommend it. Just another thing we have in common. But yes, you got to do it. They got all the old games. Tetris, Zelda. Oh, it's it's awesome. Do they have like what? what, Yeah. Mario Brothers, Duck Hunt. Those are like way back. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's it's awesome. Now, I wish they had the power pad. Did you have the power pad? Oh, I remember those. Yes, yes. Well, and I never had any of it. My parents were like, nope, but I'd go over to a friend's house and we'd yes, just like, play like yeah. 20 hours in a row. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's great. Um, Deb, I want to thank you so much uh, for coming on the podcast. I can't believe the time has just cruised by. I oh, learned a lot. So yeah, thank you. Yeah, no, it was a great conversation. I learned a lot both from this conversation and from reading the book. Um, and now I need to go embrace uncomfortable and, and see the resulting change. Um, in fact, this is a good time, I think for all of us to embrace uncomfortable because frankly, uh, we've had a lot of discomfort thrust upon us, uh, recently our work and school schedules have been disrupted. Uh, most of us are stuck inside more than we want to be. Um, and even those of us who are, you know, getting out have had to adjust our routines. I was just talking to my wife, Grace at one point, and we said, you know, this is a hard season. The kids are are home. We've got more on our plate, but let's just embrace this. <laughs> and so, um, you know, there's nothing we can do about it anyway. We might as well use this time, this occasion, this challenge to stretch and to grow. And this book was just the nudge 
I needed to keep moving in that direction, embracing uncomfortable. So Deb, thanks again. I want to say to our um, listeners, if you enjoyed this conversation, and I know you did because it was so scintillating, uh, (laughs) please leave a review on Apple or Google podcasts or just a rating. I mean, just lift your finger over the mouse or over your phone. Click the five stars. That's why we want all the stars. Uh, That really helps us spread the word and helps introduce the podcast to other people. So again, thank you for listening. Stay safe, stay uncomfortable. And until next time, keep reading.